Welcome back, everybody, to episode four of the Boldly Go podcast. I am so thrilled to present to you this conversation that I got to have with Danielle Strickland. Danielle Strickland truly is a living embodiment of what it means to boldly go. Her aggressive compassion has served people firsthand in countries all over the world. She has established justice departments through the Salvation Army. She's done church plants. She has launched global anti-trafficking initiatives, and she helps to mobilize people towards transformational living. She inspires people to live differently through organizations she's founded like Amplify Peace, Brave Global, Infinitum, and the Women's Speakers Collective, of which I am a grateful member. Danielle is also the author of several books, including her newest book called Better Together, How Women and Men Can Heal the Divide and Work Together to Transform the Future. Danielle is straight up. She tells it like it is. Uh, She doesn't mess around. And she is somebody who would prefer to take action than make a lot of speeches about it. And she, she really dropped some truth on us about toxic leadership, boundaries, how Jesus was the greatest leader ever, uh, how could we break the back of poverty by giving microloans to women, uh, how uh, women need naturally lead collaboratively, and that justice and joy should be joined together. I'm telling you, this is a, a just a power-packed conversation, and I'm excited for you to benefit from it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Danielle Strickland. Danielle, welcome to the Bully Go podcast. I am so, so grateful for you coming on the show. It's so good to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, I named my podcast Boldly Go. And to me, you are like the epitome of someone who boldly goes into, I don't know, countries and social injustice and all kinds of uh, tense topics. and, And, you know, you help people see and do things to eliminate injustice. And so I, that's, you know, that's so awesome. And your, I love how your bio says you, you're, you have aggressive compassion. And I think that that's something that we could all stand and be a little bit more aggressively compassionate. But you've served people firsthand in countries all over the world. You have created movements to mobilize people towards transformational living. You train, you advocate, you inspire people to live differently. You've written several books and you run Amplify Peace, Brave Global, Infinitum, and the Women's Speakers Collective, of which I am a proud and grateful member. Wonderful. So yeah, that's an awesome bio. But how did you get to this point in your life? You know, every superhero has an origin story. Where did you start? Yeah, hey, my origin story. Well, I mean, it's really interesting. My origin story, I always begin now with my parents' story, because both my Hmm. parents were, were oppressed, marginalized kids. So my dad was sold illegally as a baby. Wow. uh, To a, a mom that wasn't really fit, obviously, which is why she was buying children. And my mother was a foster care in the ward ward of the court. And both of them were found by people who boldly went Mm. into neighborhoods looking for kids that might want a home, like kids that might want to belong, kids that might need to know that they're wanted and they're known by name. And that was the local Salvation Army in in their, their little towns. And so they both talk about how when they went to the Salvation Army Kids Club, they felt like they had found their home. They felt Mm, like they found a place where they belonged. And so they found faith. They found God. They found out the truth that they were known and uh, that children are not born out of uh, people's wills, but out of the heart of God. And when they discovered that, then they discovered each other at a camp. And then they kind of dedicated their lives to sharing that news with others. So that's kind of the environment I was born in. So when people always ask me, like, when did you become a justice advocate? I'm always like, ah, I think I was born into justice advocacy. I remember 
you know, people in Canada, I'm Canadian and in Canada, hockey night in Canada was a big deal when I was growing up every Saturday mm -hmm. night, everyone would watch the hockey game and everyone has a team. You know, that's, we do that. We belong to teams, but our, we never had a team. I used to always walk in to hockey night in Canada and ask my dad, who are we cheering for? Oh. And my dad would always tell me who the underdog was because oh, wow. our tribe was the underdog. We were always on the side of the underdog. And that's so right. I think that's really in many essences, that's my origin story. Then I had a bit of a wild ride with God. I didn't like religion. I didn't like authority. I had issues sort of listening, I guess, and obeying. <laughs> and then that kind of coupled with some like sexual abuse in my background. So there was mm. brokenness and pain that came out as rebellion. And right. uh, anyway, ended up in a jail cell and uh, hard hearted and just really not going anywhere fast. And uh, again, the story repeats itself. A Salvation Army lady came looking for me. Really? Not let me go. I'm telling you. And I was not excited to see her. I was like, oh, God, here comes the Southern <laughs> Army. Like, the last thing I need is a lecture on how I should know better. And, you know, like, I just was like, bleh, I didn't like the church. I didn't like any of it. And, and she, did she lecture you? No, she hardly said a word to me. She came into the cell. It was a holding cell. So I was all by myself. And she came in. She gave me a lawyer's card, which I always say is that practical salvation we should all strive to share. Mm -hmm. And then she just wrapped her arms around me. She gave me a hug and she whispered in my ear, I love you. And oh. then left. But listen, oh. I didn't even hug her back. I was like, not, I yelled out after her. You didn't even bring me a smoke. That's what I said. Oh. <laughs> I was the epitome of ingrateful. Like I just could not, I didn't. I was hard, you know, I was hard and half dead. And so she left the jail cell a door closed. And then I had this weird spiritual experience that I mm. can't really even describe to this day. I, Jesus showed up in my room in that wow. cell, same thing. And he did the exact same thing she had just done. He wrapped his arms around me and he said, I love you. And I describe it as though, like this, somebody turned on a light on the inside of my life. Wow. And I finally saw, I didn't change right away. I had a long journey of drug addiction and like recovery and all sorts of things to do. But I saw for the first time my own condition and that I needed help and that God might be able to help me. That's, wow. that's how that happened. Wow. That's pretty cool. And so, you know, how did you get from there into leading all these organizations. Yeah, I call my life a great big connect the dot puzzle. So, you know, lots of people have this straight line trajectory and they're just like, I want to do this with my life. And so they, they map out a plan and they follow it oh, and yeah. it's awesome. And I love That's those people. Me. Yeah. That's not me. <laughs> Mine's like, oh, look, there's an interesting open door there. And it's like, I'm going to go to A. And then it's like, oh, right. look, there's an interesting weird thing here. And it's B. And then, and then I just kept doing what was in front of me. And so one of my you know, favorite things to share with people who are wondering how to get on with what it is that God's uh, called them to or what they feel like they're supposed to do. I always just say, what's in front of you to do? Like literally do the thing that's in front of you because that thing in front of you that you're not doing because you're projecting 10 steps later, that thing in front of you is the very thing that's going to open the door and make a way for the next thing, for the next wow. thing. And then when you take a few steps back, you're going to see a pattern emerging. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be something that you couldn't have even ever done yourself. Mm. 
And so you're you're so actively involved in you know several efforts to make the world a better place for the humans who live in it. How do you stay focused and centered, you know, and connected to the people who matter most to you and to the things that matter most to you while being involved in so many different things globally? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because I think that matters maybe the most. I'm sure I'm not alone in witnessing leaders who aren't living rooted, beautiful, open, connected lives. And we just watch them burn out or be exposed Mm -hmm. for being, you know, character issues. And it's just tiresome and sad to watch. And so I think I learned that fairly early on that I didn't want to be that person. And Mm. um, I'd say this, it is a struggle. You know, it is a struggle to contend for those, I would just say space and time to make space and time for relationships to be priority in my life. I developed a thing called infinitum, uh, which Mm -hmm. is a way of life. It's a practice that I practice every day and every week and every month. So it's basically just rhythms and postures and prayers that keep me rooted in what matters most to me, which is in my life, which is a connection to the divine, to God. And that's the only way I can keep going on a day-to-day basis. I don't know how anybody else does it, to tell you the truth. I just, I need the grace of God in my life every day. And then to keep attentive to the people that God has put in my life. And I've learned that, you know, sometimes what looks like interruption or what looks like, you know, slowing the pace for me is actually God's strategy for what he wants to do. So I've learned that over time, but it's taken a lot of training. So I do like a daily prayer in the morning. I call it a posture prayer where I use my body and I, I practice these postures, surrender, So just like, you know, and I've done lots of recovery work. So this helps there too. It's just like, I admit it. You got me. This is bigger than I can handle my day to day. Like every day, this is too much for me over to you, God. And then I, I, I practice this posture prayer called generosity, which is freely receiving what I need for the day. And then also choosing to live in a way that I give it away for free too. Mm. And that's really, and also just for today, I've also learned as I do this every morning, I've learned that what I need to ask God for is what I need for today and not to worry too much about what I can't control tomorrow. And then the final posture is an others focused posture or a mission posture. And this is where I say, and I used to think mission was about seeing people over there that needed help. And what I've realized as I prayed this prayer probably every day for about six, seven years now is that mission is just being open to others, Mm. those closest to me and also those farthest away from me. So just opening my life to see others as a way that I can encounter God. Um, And that's been that's been a game changer for my life and for the adventure of what life is. Oh, that's awesome. So it sounds like you set some pretty healthy boundaries around the practices you need to practice in order to keep yourself centered and focused and connected. Yeah, I try. And so I've also heard you talk, though, you know, one about setting those healthy boundaries, but also pushing against boundaries uh, out there in the world where boundaries are keeping people held back. You know, where do you draw the line on those two when you're out there in the world as far as healthy boundaries for yourself while you're pushing against these boundaries that that are enslaving others? Yeah, I would say that's that's actually a really, really good question. And that it really is an area of of discernment. I pray for a lot of wisdom to know mm. what is a healthy boundary and what is just an excuse boundary. Mm. You know, so I think we make boundaries that are just excuses because we're afraid. And so we language our fear. And 
I would say that any boundary that's an exclusion based one. So again, like I pray every day that my life would be open to others. So I pretty easily cross boundaries that are exclusion based boundaries mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. I, it, that boundary itself prevents me from opening my life to others. So I feel like boundaries that are exclusionary based, which have been designed just to keep people out. I think those are, you know, by design, by God's design, they need right. to be broken. But like, I think God wants us to break those things <laughs> on a regular basis. So speaking of breaking things, you posted a video on Instagram a few months back about toxic cultures. And I watched it live and I was like taking notes. I'm like, this is good stuff. And it went viral for good reasons. But what inspired you to speak on that that day? And were you surprised by, by how people reacted to it? Yeah. I mean, I was really surprised at how, like, I was surprised in a sad way to tell you the truth Mm -hmm. that so many people from so many different backgrounds understood and have experienced the toxicity of terrible leaders in toxic cultures. And I spoke, yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. And it's so, and, and that's really why I did the post. I did the post because I feel like we only really ever talk about toxic cultures when it comes to big celebrity leaders getting exposed for terrible things. Yeah. And then we just think it's some exceptional, like they were terrible people, you know, and whenever that happens, you always see this, like people pushing back going like, oh yes, those people, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I just had all, I was like, no, like this thing is so prevalent in tiny little places and families and homes and tiny churches and little NGOs. Like there's so much toxicity that produces these kind of leaders yeah, And we can't just always, you know, blame it on the leader there that like somebody helped the leader, like somebody protected the leader, like somebody, some system propped up that leader. Like, that's right. And we have to take responsibility for the systems we've created. So for me, it was really just like, I was tired of the conversation not going to more root issues. Because mm-hmm. I don't think we can ever change anything if we're busy pointing the fingers at each other. You know, some, so true. sometime we got to go, okay, let's have an honest conversation about what's really happening and how we can be part of the solution. And I think in my own life too, I had put up with a lot of things thinking that I was being uh, spiritual or kind, thinking it was generosity to not speak about my own toxicity in, in my own experience. Mm. And then really realizing that during the season that I was not being kind by not speaking the truth or sharing that with others. I was actually perpetuating the problem. Mm. So I think it also came out of this like, scary, transparent, like, I don't want to hurt anything. But also, I cannot be complicit in this any longer. Wow. So, you know, looking at leaders who are fallible, you know, who, on the flip side of that, who do you think is the would be you would consider the greatest leader of all time? Well, Jesus. (laughs) I feel like it sounds like a Sunday school lesson, but like, I literally, like the more I look into the person of Jesus, like the way he lived his life, the principles of his life, what he did, how he challenged. I mean, I've just got through a deep study with a professor friend of mine, just a personal study, the gospel of John, Mm. which is really a story of the life of Jesus. And it's like, it is so mind blowing how he led. I mean, It's like, no matter what you think about Jesus, he was the most remarkable leader who's ever lived. There's no question about it. I took an Uber with a Jewish uh, Uber driver and I was telling him, give me your top five Jewish heroes, you know? 
And even him, you know, he's a Jew. He doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but he's like, Jesus has got to be in the top five of the Jewish heroes, right? Oh, wow. That's great. That's awesome. Remarkable. I think there's a good, you know, valid, there's a lot of valid reasons for for leaders to model model themselves after Jesus' style of leadership. But do you think you have to be a believer to do that? Well, you know, it's interesting. There was a book many years ago, like 25, I'm dating myself now. I'm older than I appear, but for now, anyway, give it a year or two. <laughs> uh, but there was a book by Lori Beth something, and it was called Jesus CEO mm. it was about 25 years ago. And it was a leadership book, basically just using the principles of Jesus's life and applying them and watching the change happen. So I don't think that you need to be a Christian to model your life after Jesus. I mean, Gandhi is a great example of that. When Martin Luther King Jr. went over to visit Gandhi to say, what are you doing? And how are you changing the nation without violence? And Gandhi looked at him like, you know, how can you not know? I'm simply reading the words of Jesus and then trying to apply them to Mm. India. And, uh, you know, Gandhi read the Beatitudes, the core teachings of Jesus every morning, and then just tried to practice them every day. That's how Gandhi was Gandhi. So, you know, and he would not profess to be a Christian, although I think the reason he wouldn't profess to be a Christian is because Christians have so not looked like Jesus, which might be more about, you know, your friend's conversation about not wearing, you know, a cross at work because of the backlash. I don't think people are backlashing against Jesus. I think the backlash is against a church that hasn't looked like Jesus because Mm, whenever you see a leader who looks like Jesus, whether or not they profess themselves to be Christian or not in another great example of this is Nelson Mandela Mm -hmm. who refused to come out as a Christian when he was leading South Africa, because he didn't want to divide anybody to unite his country. But I remember a friend of mine who wasn't even a Christian who said, just listen to the man. He sounds like Jesus. You know, like because we were having a debate about whether or not mm-hmm. Nelson Mandela was a Christian. Is he a Christian? Is he not a Christian? And then this guy who's not even a Christian just said, Well, just listen to the man. He sounds like <laughs> Jesus, right? Like, who can forgive your enemy? Like, who can aim for this like ultimate human interaction of Ubuntu, this principle of connectedness, without the teachings of Jesus? You know, it, it was just you know, it's mind blowing Jesus. So I would say, yes, please model your life after Jesus. There's another guy, Mohammed Yunus, who's another hero. And he's mm-hmm. the guy, he's Bangladeshi and Muslim guy. And he started the microcredit loaning program to try to combat poverty in Bangladesh. Oh, wow. He discovered that if microcredit loans to women, it would break the back of poverty. And it actually became a strategy that the world uses now on a regular basis. And when he used to move his bank, the Grameen Bank, into Bangladeshi and villages, the leaders of the villages would get together and try to keep him out. Mm. And he would say, why do you want to keep me out? I'm going to help you. You know, like I'm going to help your village. And they said to him, oh, we're on to you. We know you're a Christian. Oh, and Mohammed's like, what are you talking about? My name's Mohammed. I'm a Muslim. Like, I'm not a Christian. And the village leaders were like, you have got to be a Christian because Christians are the only people that we know that would do this. And so again, like, I think- But that- we're still going to block them. We're still going to block people from coming in to help. Yeah, because it's a pa- it was men and it was a power issue with women and like all this mm. stuff. But I mean, at the same time, like, this is what Jesus looks like. You know, he looks like micro lending programs to the poor. I mean, he looks like nonviolent resistance. He looks like soul force. He looks like, Mm. you know, I mean, I mean, this is just what he looks like. So I would say, yes, everybody could learn from the person of Jesus. 
No, that's awesome. And so you, you know, speaking about empowering women, you know, you founded the Women's Speakers Collective. How did that come about? And, you know, why did you do it? And what do you hope people get from it? Yeah. So basically, I found myself on a lot of platforms that as the only female speaker and mostly male audiences. That's my life in the tech world as a speaker in the tech world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tech world and leader, like every time I was at a leader, especially church leadership conferences, I always used to say it was a sign and wonder because the men's bathroom would have a lineup and I could just go straight to the women's. I was like the only event I've ever been to where there's no lineup at the women's washroom. Right. (laughs) So that was the only upside. But I was asking the conference organizers and stuff like, where are the other women? Like, I don't understand why I'm the only women speaker. And a couple things came up. One, they didn't know any, which I thought, shame on you. And mm. the other was that when they did ask them, they said no. And so I started just doing a little bit of research myself. I actually started by shaming the organizers and kind of like trying to guilt them. And then, of course, shame and guilt never work as motivators, <laughs> just a heads up. So I thought, well, maybe I could just help. You know, maybe there's something I could do that would help, like, mm-hmm. close the gap. And the more research I did, the more I realized that women are under-supported, under-trained, under-practiced. So I wanted to create a place where we could train, practice, and support, like, collectively women speakers to kind of bridge some of that gap. And then the other thing I, I realized is because of our segregated practices, there are boys clubs and they don't know who the women are. So the other thing that I thought is what if we could platform some women voices and try to create some, some more ways of platforming female voices. Mm -hmm. I I really decided I didn't just want to be an exception to the rule. I wanted to change the game. I love Um, that. So that's what we're trying to do at the women's speaker collective. No, that's so cool. And I went to the Women's Speakers Collective boot camp in New York City, you know, not this past February, the one right before COVID. It was yeah. actually the last trip I got to take before COVID <laughs> hit, which was great, you know, that that was my last memory there. And I learned so much about, you know, the mechanics behind speaking and the motivation for speaking. But I also experienced just me personally coming from the tech world, I joined this group of women to do this boot camp. And sitting on my left, the woman had been pastoring a church with her husband for like the past 25 years. And the woman on my right had like just got back from, you know, inoculating orphans in Somalia, where she's been for the past 20 years doing missions. And I'm going, what am I doing here? Like, I literally had the the worst and first case of imposter syndrome I've ever had. Right. You know, just going, I I don't belong here. You know, I, I should just stay in my lane. I should just, you know, stick to what I know and stick to what I'm good at and go back to tech and, and, you know, stop trying to also do ministry. And I went home just feeling super defeated in that way. And over time, you know, I did a lot of Bible studies and stuff and realized that that was just the, that was just the enemy trying to hold me back, you know, to whisper that discouragement. And I also, you know, God told me basically that, I have more in common with the people in the audience than necessarily with the people who've been in ministry their whole lives. Because I go to church on Sunday and go to work on Monday like they do. And so then I join, you know, with Autumn Cats, the, the Women Speakers Collective online group, that global collective. And I've been learning so much there, you know, not just speaking, but writing and, you know, all these awesome things. And I think that imposter syndrome, though, is a really, really challenging dilemma that a lot of women face, you know, statistics show that if, if you see an open job ad, you know, you see the requirements for the job, men will look at the requirements and go, Oh, I have maybe 60% of those requirements. I'm going to apply, but women won't apply unless they feel like they have at least 90% of the requirements. Right. 
Right. You know, and so, you know, can you speak into that a little bit? Like, have you experienced it? How would you encourage women to overcome that? Yeah, so there's probably a couple things. It's a real thing statistically. Women, one of the stats that causes me the most sadness is that a women will be most self-confident at the age of nine. Whoa. So after the age of nine, you know, women are on a, girls are on a downward you know, sort of fight their self-esteem, their confidence, their sense of self. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. You know, puberty, you know, even just menstruating is a big deal for women and for girls. It's like knocks them back like 10 good steps around shame and, you know, body image and all that kind of stuff. Right. And then just dominant culture, you know, there's just so many dominant male-based strategies and systems that insist that women are the outsiders and don't belong whether or not they know about it or not. So this is happening on a regular basis. So women internally feel this way a lot. And I think the only way to do is to identify it. I think that's why uh, creating collectives where other women are around each other. It's too bad that happened at New York. It was just me. Like it wasn't the women trying to make me feel that way by no, any way. It know. was just my own. Yeah, but that's the idea of a collective. And I think the global collective, we're trying more and more to get you know more specific around specific skills instead of that mm-hmm. was just a speaking boot camp. But this is like just even around communications and the different ways we communicate and, you know, uh, pop from podcasts to book writing to mm-hmm. uh, NGO starting to all the things. That's been awesome. Yeah. So I think it's good, but I, I also think, so I think collective community, having other people that speak into your life to say, Oh no, I see these things in you. Like this is not just you thinking highly of yourself. Like these are gifts that you have. Like mm. we need to create people in our lives who will speak truth to us when we're doubting. So I think that's number one. We have this like what I call a Hercules myth, which is that these people, this what I call a myth of ascension, this Hercules syndrome. We have this uh, idea in our head that they're the, our singular heroic leaders that are everything they're, you know, they they do things that no one else can do. They're stronger than everybody. And what I've come to learn is that every single leader that you think is amazing in and of themselves has created a community around them that speaks life into them, that celebrates them, that has authentic relationships. So I think that's really, really important, especially as women. And then I would say the other thing is when I battle this, whenever I get into my head, which is what I call that, when I get into my head and I start thinking about all the reasons that people won't like me or I won't succeed or this won't happen or I'll follow my face or who do I think I am? All those questions have one thing in common, me. I'm at the center of those questions. And so what I try to do is I try to flip the script. And this is just simply what I, I, I use this one phrase all the time to snap me out of that conversation. Because even if I could get to the answer of those questions, it wouldn't really matter. The question I really want to ask in that situation is not what do people think of me, but how can I serve? Mm. How can I serve the people that I'm called to right at this moment? That's the question that I start asking. And so if it's a speaking situation, I'll even start visioning people who might be in the audience. Like there's a single mom here who is at the end of her rope. There's a business guy here who's just like, you know, struggling to make ends meet. There's like, you know, there's, there's people here who need to be served. Uh, And how do I serve them? That becomes a question. So I get myself out of the center of the conversation because even imposter syndrome, we can pat it, we can you know, we can hug it and you'd be like, Oh, poor you. Just get yourself out of the center of that conversation. I kid you not. It'll be a pivot that will then help you do what it is that you are called to do. Right. No, that's awesome. And then, you know, 
when you talk about empowering women, you know, you talked in your book, Better Together, which is awesome, by the way, but you're, that's your, I, that's your latest book, right? Yeah. Do you yeah got another right. one coming? I do have another all... one coming. <laughs> Yay! Okay. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but in Better Together, you talk about gender inequality. And so I love when we inspire people to, you know, want to fix things, but what are some practical things that people can do yeah. to help affect that situation? Well, if you're a leader, one of my big challenges to leaders is, you know, one thing is that inviting women to be on leadership teams or in leadership circles is not just a nice thing to do. It's a strategic advance. All the studies have shown globally that when you empower women to be part of leadership, everybody gets better, like exponentially better. And there's all these studies. So that like Goldman Sachs, like business, like strategic businesses, like HSBC, for example, like discovered this and now is like on the track to try to empower women at least 50-50 in the country because they see this, their business depends on it. So the UN, if you ask them, you know, out of all the millennium development goals that you created to make the world a better place by 2030, what's the one that would change all of them? And they'll say it's women. It's empowered wow. women. If you ask Mohammed Yunus, how do we break the back of extreme poverty? He'll tell you it's women. So it's mm. not just like you should be nice to women because like it's the woke thing to do. It's like, no, you should just be nice to women because it's a better way to lead. And women bring with them just such a wealth of experience and knowledge and intuition even about leading because they've all been leading influential in influential ways, whether they've been recognized or not. So wow. the goal to to get to that might change the culture of your leadership team is to aim for what they call the 30% quota. So the temptation when it comes to equity and women is to just have a woman be an exception. So you get one woman in and you're like, excellent, we did it. We ticked off the woman box. But what happens when you have right. one woman or, or even two sometimes, if they're outnumbered, you get what's called an exceptional problem. And that is just simply that the women are speaking into something, but they're not changing the something because they're always mm -hmm. the exception to the dominant rule. Oh, wow. So if you really want to change the game for your culture or your team or your leadership or your company, you need to get what they say 30% the quota that actually allows whatever the diversity, but particularly women, to change the culture of the team or the organization. So I always say, don't aim for a woman on your board aim for 30%. If you aim for 30%, you have a chance of those women changing the culture and making you a different team as a result. Oh, that's, we have definitely seen that, you know, at my company, half of our executive team is female. So we're at 50%, but we've always been like the company was, was sort of founded that way with that in mind. So, you know, that's been tremendous for the culture that we've driven at the company. And then we've seen that with sharp contrast as to what the culture is like in other companies where, you know, we'll hire people and they tell us, wow, where I used to work, it was like being in a men's locker room all the time. And that's not what it's like at my company because the women drive that help to drive that culture of respect and equality and inclusion and so on. And so we just, you know, we also encourage people not to start emails with, hey guys, right. when not everyone on the email is a guy. Right. Because if I sent that, if I said, hey, ladies, to a group of men and women, I guarantee you there's going to be some guys who get their feathers ruffled. Yeah. So you see how the, the inclusion actually answers a lot of the, the dilemmas already. You start looking at alternative ways to mentor. For example, you do things in teams more naturally. And they say that one of the things that women inherent in the way that women lead, and they don't know why, they don't know if like, they don't know why this is the case, but it's one of the great differences in men and women 
is women lead collaboratively, naturally. They're just natural collaborative leaders. So what they've noticed is that a lot of male-based companies or cultures will be very competitive. And women are collaborative. So even if they win, they feel bad about winning if someone else lost. And, you know, as I read that research, I was like, this is so true. I know. So even myself, I'm always like, did I win? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel bad, you know. So, but how women are built is to actually collaborate so that we can all win. And when mm. you think about that in a team culture, you know, I mean, what an incredible value that is to a team to say, like, what are the ways that we can still have a competitive edge but right. compete in such a way that it's collaborative and everybody wins instead of, you know, di divisive and somebody loses. Right. And so right. just, I mean, that's just one little strength that women hold, but there's tons of others, but just the diversity of experience and uh, life and background. And, uh, and, and when you're thinking about your market, who you're trying to reach on a business level, gee, you're going to need some women on your team because uh, women are the future of business. Oh, it's so true. There have been several times when I've walked into a meeting with another company and there's, you know, nine guys around this conference table and I, I walk in by myself and the one guy will get up and come over, shake my hand and, and we meet. And then he kind of looks past me and he says, oh, is it just you? <laughs> and, I, and I will say, yeah, is it just the nine of you? Because now we're evenly matched. That's let's, right. let's get to work, you know, right. to bring a little humor, but still call attention to what just happened, but do it in a way that's that's humorous and sort of lets him off the hook. Because I think you can you can call attention to some of these inequalities in the moment without being a bull in a china shop. Yeah, that's a you great know, strategy. I find cheeky cheekiness to be underrated in terms of strategic <laughs> advocacy power. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I mean, if we can bring it to light, but then laugh about it, then you might have changed somebody's mind as to how they're going to act next time towards the next person, I think. Yeah. And I mean, them, it doesn't help. Yeah. And it is funny, isn't it? I mean, it mm -hmm. is just, and if you're holding it lightly too, like it's not, mm -hmm. you know, and I guess some people get afraid if you're a justice advocate that you're going to be all bad news all the time. Right. And uh, it is contrary to my experience of most of the justice advocates I admire were known for their joy. And mm. uh, I love that. I'd love for justice and joy to be, you know, joined together. They're supposed to be. No, oh, that's awesome. And so the other thing I wanted to ask you about is what is IMBI? Yeah. So IMBI, thanks for asking me. <laughs> uh -huh. So I just launched this because I spent a lot of time in my backyard this year. And I have these competing problems in my life. I have a real desire to see the homeless affordable, the housing affordable crisis that we're living in in big cities all around the world mm -hmm. solved. And yeah. I also, I, at the same time, I'm aware of a loneliness, depression, mental health, anxiety crisis that are happening to people with homes and uh, with higher wealth index. And it struck me and a couple of friends over a campfire, actually, that these things might go together, that there might actually be a different way to live together in a way where we open our backyards and our lives up. And uh, so the idea is to build tiny houses in people's backyards and redefine what we mean by family. And uh, we just really mm. uh, idealistically, maybe, we believe that there's enough room for everybody. Wow. And, um, and that if we opened our lives up to other people, we would be better too. So our healing mm. is connected. So we're going to benefit one another. So we've got five projects on the go for this summer. We're hoping by the end of the summer to have five pilots done in backyards uh, here in Canada. Wow. And maybe, maybe one in America, we're, we're, we're looking into it. 
And um, oh, I've, seen, I've seen small like containerized homes. Is it something like that? Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, there's five different pilots. So there's a container type of a model. There's like a hybrid. So maybe someone has a garage and half the mm. garage is turned into a tiny house. Half of it's still a garage. You know, it really depends on the backyard. One will be definitely a portable model. So it'll be on wheels somehow. Mm. So we're looking at just piloting different ways that fit different bylaws and different backyards. But the big, big thing we're trying to do is change the way we live. I just think there's a better way to live. Yeah, Christy McClelland, who I had on the podcast uh, last, she talked about generosity and how much is enough for you? You know, as we all accumulate wealth or, or whatever in our own ways, how much do you really need to keep for yourself? Because right. our culture is so individualistic about every person for themselves instead of the community model of the early church where everyone gave as they needed to give. You know, it gave the, sh- the shirt off their back if somebody else didn't have one. And we've yeah, gotten so far I, away from that. Yeah. And I think the thing that's really been challenging me is it's time to rethink how we're living because it's not really working out for us. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing is like, it's a great, like I have everything I need. I have my own backyard. I have privacy. I'm walked away from other people and we're all dying inside here because this isn't actually right. how we were designed to live. So it's sort of like great model, good experiment. And I often remind people, this is an experiment. It's only been about 70 years that we've really constructed the American dream as this mm-hmm. isolated nuclear family living in the suburbs, you know, cut off from each other. That's a, that's a new dream. And uh, it's not working. You know, that dream didn't work out. So it's just probably time to, to tweak the dream at the very least to see if we can mm-hmm. get a different outcome. Anyway. I would say having, having another family live in your backyard would be aggressively compassionate. Yeah, or even like uh, in my backyard, I'm hoping to make some space for a refugee friend of mine. She's a single uh, woman, but like a force of nature. She's amazing. Mm. My kids love her. We love her. To say that that would be uh, charity would be to misunderstand it. I mean, Mm. it would just be a better way to live. Legit. It would add value to our house and it would add value to her standard of life. And together then we make a better world. And I think that's, it's that again, we're like full circle back to Nelson Mandela and the Ubuntu ideas that the way we live with one another is an exchange. You know, it's not, I mean, and for me, it's partly getting out of this idea that because I'm wealthy, I have so much to offer because we see the, everything through the lens of economics in the capitalist society. But actually I have a lot to, I have a lot, I have a lot of needs, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the diversity that my friend offers, her culture, her understanding, her connectedness, like another an aunt for my kids, another adult around to model something different, the joy. I mean, she can garden, I can't garden. Like, I mean, there's just all, I mean, it goes on and on. And okay, I think- Now you've piqued my interest because I can't garden either. <laughs> I need help there. <laughs> well, and you see like all the stats, speaking of women, like women are taking a big hit during COVID. Yeah, huge. Um, yeah, and you just think like the nuclear family, like this idea that we have to do everything by ourselves. Mm-hmm. that's new, man. That wasn't around 70 years ago. And that doesn't work. That's too hard. Nobody can do that. Like I've, I've always had, we've always had people as part of our extended life, you know, people living with us and stuff. Cause we just like need help. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like people, I got kids, man. I think it takes a village to raise a kid. I can't raise kids by myself. So I think, yeah, I just think it's about reframing, getting rid of all these like crazy expectations of these autonomous, individual, self-contained right. lives. 
And then also I remember my kid, we lived in condos and inner cities for most of my life. So it was much more connected with your neighbors, whether you liked it or not. Right. And my kid spent his life growing, growing up, just go, my eldest son going to parks. That was, his, we didn't have a backyard, right? We just went right. to parks and stuff. And I remember the first backyard we have, we moved into this house and it's a big backyard. And my, he's running around in the backyard. He's like, we have such a big backyard. This is incredible. And then he gets done running around and he looks at me and he goes, well, who will I play with here, mom? Oh. <laughs> and I was oh. like, that's such a good question. And actually that's the, like, mm. who are, what are we doing? Every kid in this neighborhood has their own backyard. Like, who are they going to play with? Like, what's it for? Right. And that's, you know, so right. in my backyard is kind of like, what's our backyard for anyway? And maybe we could, maybe we could live a different way. So, and from a company that does a lot of construction, I'm just thinking logistically, you know, if it's, if it's technically a portable home and it doesn't have to have like a concrete pad, then you don't necessarily need a permit to put it down. Yeah. And here's, what's really exciting is, and this is how uh, partly I know God is leading us because literally I would not have come up with the idea of tiny houses and backyards. I'm not into construction. I'm not even to staying in my own backyard. I'm traveling all over the world. Like it's not the thing I do. But my friend who's a construction person that's part of the partner, it's part of his dream is the constructing alternative housing. And we're also building an equity model so that when someone pays affordable mm -hmm. rent, some of that money goes into an equitable trust for them as well oh, but, wow. um, to get people out of poverty. But all the bylaws are changing fast and furious because yeah. we're not alone in the affordable housing crisis. So in yeah. the city where I live, Toronto, and in the city where the construction worker partner lives in Hamilton, both the cities have fast-tracked bylaws to allow tiny homes and backyards. Oh, wow. Just this month. So we're oh, just like, cool. in case we needed some extra confirmation that uh, the strategies may be led by God, here it is. And, uh, oh, that's so cool. So last question, and I ask this of everybody, what is something you've done in the last maybe year or two that you have considered, this was a bold move even for me? Like you, you're looking at this going, okay, this one's scary. This might not work out like I want it to, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take the fear, take the risk and, and do it anyway. So what was something bold that you did? Yeah, this was it. I launched a nonprofit in an area that I'm not really very skilled at <laughs> <laughs> and don't really know what I'm doing, but yeah, with partners, I don't really know well. I mean, you know, we met over a campfire in the summer last year. And so we launched this nonprofit in January. So, I mean, yeah, it was pretty bold with no real funding or money. We're just like, it's really fascinating. And it's fun. It actually, it reminds me because I think what happens is the first time you do something like that, it's terrifying. And you're like, what am I going to do? And then you see, you know, whether it fails or succeeds, you go, oh, that's what happens. Oh, I see. That's interesting. I grew, you know, stuff happened. I changed. Yeah. This is amazing. And then the second time you do it, you're a little nervous, but you're, <laughs> but now by the time I'm doing it now, I'm just excited. Like I just, I yeah. recognize all those signs as like, I wonder what's going to happen. Even if it fails, this is going to be one of the most, you know, fun years of my life. No, that's cool. And I see you ask the question a lot. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. <laughs> and so did you ask yourself with this one too? What's the worst Absolutely. that could happen? <laughs> I mean, we could lose a lot of money. <laughs> you know, people could say you've lost your minds. You know, it might not work. Yeah. I mean, what's the worst that could happen, really? I mean, once you square that one face to face, you know, you square it in the, in the mirror, you look at that and you're like, yeah, okay, let's do that. What's the worst that could happen? 
<laughs> well, thank you, Danielle, so much for coming on the show. And your work has personally blessed me. I mean, your courage and conviction has set an example for me to follow, you know, for as far as speaking out against injustice and speaking up for people who can't speak up for themselves. So I really, really appreciate all that you do and everything that you said today. And I know it's going to bless somebody who's out there listening who needed to hear what you said. So thank you so much. Thanks, Missy. Keep up the great work. You're leading Thanks. by example. Love it. Thanks, Danielle. Have a great one. Bye. Okay. Wow. So does anybody else other than me feel like they have a lot more work to do to help make the world a better place? I'm so inspired to take action based on some of the things Danielle said. You know, one of the things that really stuck with me is that, you know, inviting and empowering women to be part of leadership teams is not just a nice thing to do. It is strategic. Don't be nice to women just because it's a woke thing to do. Do it because it's a better way to lead. I just love that. I also loved her posture of servanthood. You know, how do we stop thinking and worrying about what other people are going to think of me? Instead, think about how can I serve? If you're standing up there on that stage, if you're leading a team, if you're in the middle of a community, how can I serve? Takes the focus off of me, gets myself out of the center of conversation. I just love that. And I also loved how she talked about People who are not Christians are sometimes reacting not against Jesus, but rather against a church who hasn't looked like Jesus. For those of us who believe if we modeled our lives and our actions and our words after Jesus, I think the world would be a much better place. And I also love that she asks, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, truly, for those of us who are considering bold moves to think about what's the worst that could happen, a lot of times it's not really that bad. You know, and to take that, that attitude of, of how bad could it get if I actually took this bold move? I want to encourage you, those of you who are thinking about making bold moves in your lives, look at Danielle Strickland as a model for how to boldly go into that future of the unknown and use your bold moves to serve others and make the world a better place. If this podcast blessed you, please share it with someone else who you might think need to hear this message. Please share it on social media. And until next time, this is Missy Young signing off. Missy Young.